You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. How can healthcare professionals shorten the learning curve to initiating insulin therapy and learning about its benefits? Joining us to discuss resistance to insulin therapy is associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and Nursing in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Dr. Linda Seminario. Dr. Seminario, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. I'm happy to join the call. Linda, why the need to separate fact versus fallacy for patients and and especially providers as it relates to insulin therapy? Well, I think it's really important for all of us, patients, providers, be it nurses, physicians, etc., to have a really good understanding um, of insulin therapies and the importance of insulin therapy. Um, because as you know, uh, Steve, you know, we really um, are way behind in the number of patients who really uh, require insulin therapy and are very, very delayed um, in initiating this therapy for a number of reasons that we can talk about. I think we have to separate patient versus provider. So let's talk about patient resistance first, but I'm also a big believer that many patients would have less issues starting on insulin if the provider did not have psychological insulin resistance. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And so, you know, on on the patient side, um, the psychological insulin resistance, you know, we use the terminology insulin phobia, or probably a better term is insulin anxiety or injection anxiety. And it's probably an um, overblown perception. I mean, the, the rates of people having true phobias are really very, very low. And I think we just automatically um, have this um, reaction perception that people are afraid of needles. And really, even if they do have fears, they're probably not valid in um, today's uh, world with needles. Uh, you know, many of us have perceptions, patients and healthcare professionals, um, based on the uh, experiences we had when we were kids. And, of course, you know, um, depending on how old you are, uh, the needle sizes were, um, you know, the gauges were larger, the needles were longer, longer, and, you know, needles weren't treated. So those perceptions aren't the realities of injections today. You know, with patients, sometimes uh, injections conjure up a lot of other feelings along with just fear of pain with the injection. I think um, injections sometimes um, make people think that they've lost control, lost control of their lives, their schedules. And in many cases, um, you know, they perceive or they they have the feeling, um, and this could be based on reactions from their healthcare providers or family that they failed. And so, you know, how many of us in healthcare um, have heard um, our colleagues say, you know, if you don't listen to me and you don't lose weight or you don't take your pills, I'm going to put you on a needle. Yep. So, I mean, people feel failure. And and then socially, I, I don't even have to tell you how needles in our, um, in our society, you know, drum up these negative um, connotations. You know, Linda, this is such an age-old problem, and one of the biggest barriers in diabetes is really 
getting our type 2 patients who are not doing well on oral medications onto insulin. In terms of clinical inertia, I mean, obviously, the clinician is not injecting themselves, but I think there's an issue of time, and there's a tendency for these providers to wait until, quote-unquote, let's wait three more months or the next visit. How do you, how do you address that? You know, uh, our healthcare systems have kind of squelched our uh, time with patients in, in many practices 10 to 12 minutes. And so, of course, uh, the primary care physician who's, you know, the person who's taking care of most people with diabetes, oh, my gosh, insulin, that means I've got to teach a skill. And then um, associated with insulin are is hyperglycemia and weight gain. And how do I address all of these things in that 12-minute span, particularly whenever I'm not an endocrinologist with a team surrounding me um, to help address those kinds of issues and skills that the patient needs to learn. So I think there's a reluctance. And I think there's a reluctance, too, because sometimes we apply our feelings onto our patients. Gee, I wouldn't want to take insulin, so I'm sure, I'm sure this patient who is, um, let's just call them non-compliant or they don't need to hear, they're definitely not going to take the needle. So I think that sometimes we apply our own activities and feelings onto our patients without getting our patients a real chance. You know, Linda, that's such a great point, and it, it pertains to so many other topics, whether it's insulin pump therapy or a good candidate for CGM, continuous glucose monitoring. You know, it's so difficult to take our own feelings out of decisions for patients. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I'm speaking with my friend and colleague, Dr. Linda Seminario. We are discussing the resistance to starting insulin. Well, do you have any uh, solvable approaches uh, for providers? Well, uh, you know, I think that we are um, recognizing these challenges. I think we're recognizing the challenges of primary care. Linda, we've been recognizing these problems for 10 years, as far as I know. Well, we're recognizing them, but I do think that in many, many of our communities, we're taking action. I think that, um, you know, our focus has been in primary care on the number of patients that we see, and that's where the rewards were. But now we're looking at more quality initiatives. And so in looking at quality, we know that the thing with diabetes that over and over again has been demonstrated to uh, be the most significant um, impactor on um, glycemia is team-based care. So many communities across the country and the world are looking at avenues to help the primary care provider have advantages of team-based care. Well, tell us more about that and tell us about uh, the, the Diabetes Days that you're involved with, your, that program. Yeah, you know, a couple of years ago, um, you know, people said the primary care physicians are never going to allow you to go into their offices with this program. We have, like many, many states, um, diabetes self-management education programs. They historically have been set in hospital-based programs. The physician's going to start a patient on insulin. Here's a prescription. I think they have classes on Wednesday night. Call them, see if they have a class, and then they'll teach you how to give your insulin injection. 
Well, we realized um, that that model doesn't always work. Patients forget. Um, they can't get to that class at that particular evening. And also, there isn't a, a really good connection between the physician and the patient who's not a part of their practice. So moved our diabetes educators into the primary care practice. So they're a part of the office and a, a trusted member of the practice team. So we can't be in every office every day. We don't have those kinds of resources. But we have diabetes days in practices. And so the practice says, you know, gee, Tuesday's a good day to be in my office. And we work with the office staff. And diabetes patients, are um, their visits are focused on days in that particular practice. So that the physicians in the office know that our diabetes educator is available on Tuesdays. They're going to have an insulin start. Gee, you know, she's not here this Tuesday. She'll be here next Tuesday. I want you to see the diabetes educator in my practice. So it creates a team um, within the practice setting. And, we, setting. and we've had great reception, satisfaction from both the providers and from the patients with this model. Yeah, I'm not surprised because, uh, you know, primary care doctors, they, they want to do the right thing. But I think there's just so much of a time limitation. And if you have a group that comes in and helps your troubled patients on one day a week, it makes perfect sense. Now, do you charge for the service? And how do people find out about it? Well, in, in our particular setting, what we've done is worked out an arrangement with our network of primary care physicians so that we have an agreement. And, you know, self-management education is a covered service under Medicare and almost all insurers. And so um, the practice bills for the service and then um, gives us back, um, you know, about 90% of the billing 10% for about overhead, and then we're able to justify um, our existence in going into the practices. You know, another resource that I think is utilized, and I think we're going to see a change in this um, because we need to be more community is I think that we need to start relying more on our pharmacies. And I know, you know, there are several programs. I, Pittsburgh is one of the 10 city challenges where we're using pharmacy-based programs so that there's another trusted resource in the community that our primary care practice, practitioners can rely on. Yeah, the use of the pharmacist uh, in diabetes management has so has been so crucial. So I would say for doctors who may be living in a city where they don't have these excellent programs that you've described, I mean, I want to just say, you know, reach out to the local certified diabetes educator who can do, uh, at least on a limited basis, what you're doing with Diabetes Days. Yes, I, I think it's a, a great model. And, you know, not only to get patients initiated on things like insulin therapy, but it's a great support me mechanism because, Steve, you know, one of the things that we know is, um, that's provided in the literature is that self-management education works, but it's, it, it's like any other, it's like a medication, it's a therapy. If, if you get a bolus, that's great. Your A1C comes down, but then over time it needs to be maintained. So educators, pharmacies, et cetera, if we get those community-based programs involved, they can help sustain adherence and help identify problems along the way to keep people on their uh, management strategy. Yeah, we, we all know that starting insulin is one thing and then proper uh, insulin titration is another. Well, I'd like to thank our guest. Associate Professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and Nursing in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 
Dr. Linda Seminario. Dr. Seminario, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, to help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.